So friends, we are beginning a new worship series this morning. It's going to run for a number of weeks as we get introduced to some people from across history, some way back, some more recent icons of the faith. Icons because they are iconic, but also drawing on a little bit of a Eastern Orthodox practice. The Eastern Orthodox Church, one of their spiritual traditions is to pray using icons, painted images of Christ, of God, the Trinity, and also occasionally the saints and figures from throughout history. Not praying to the painted images in any way or a shape or form, but using them as a reminder, as a guide through life, as those who have lived it before, who have wisdom to share, and the ways that they are painted and depicted can help those with those icons around remember and relearn the lessons that the icons learned before them. And so we're doing sort of an audible take on this visual tradition, each week catching a different icon of the faith, putting their story before us in hopes that it might provide some insight, some wisdom, and some guidance for us. And so as you heard in the children's message, we begin today with Julian of Norwich. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. This is the most well-known quote from the 14th century English mystic, Julian of Norwich, and it is beloved and meaningful and poetic, even if it can come across as feeling a little bit trite. For a long time, it was the only thing I knew about Julian of Norwich, which meant that it stood alone and without context, like some sort of happy-go-lucky mantra to be recited in difficult moments for a vaguely religious sense of comfort. On its own, the sentiment is a bit of an empty consolation, a blind optimism detached from reality. But Julian of Norwich is anything but a Pollyanna. Her theology was not born in times of peace and prosperity, but at the intersection of life and death. In difficult times, not all that unlike our own. The similarities are so striking, in fact, that it's a little bit eerie. In 14th century England, when Julian lived, the bubonic plague, sometimes called the Black Death, was sweeping across the continent. It was a novel and unfamiliar disease. It was highly contagious and airborne, as it spread from person to person with devastating effects. The illness came in waves that were difficult to separate from one another, and depending on how you count, Julian lived through either two or five waves of the bubonic plague pandemic. There were massive casualties, eventually killing half of the population of Europe and reducing the overall population of the entire earth by about a million people. And the plague had a lasting impact on every facet of life, not just those who were lost, as we might expect. Fear and confusion would have spread as quickly as the sickness itself did as society struggled with the sudden loss of security and stability. The relentless possibility of residual surges would have left communities weary, and while they were already emotionally drained from the struggle to grieve the profound losses they experienced in only a few short years. 
The plague exposed the inequalities and injustices of medieval society. The authority figures of the day shirked their responsibilities. Debilitating fear from the pandemic turned individuals inward and away from mutual support and communal action, and it became clear that their societal hierarchy had created a system that valued some lives more than others. The resulting turmoil of the plague was a direct cause of the peasants' result a peasant's revolt in 1381, which ended only when it was violently suppressed by King Richard II. There was turmoil in the church, too, which was impacted by the plague. Over the course of the plague, priests could not perform the sacrament of last rites, and in the time afterward, the church was in a period of schism, as multiple popes all claimed authority as the one true pope over a period of decades. And so it was a tumultuous time, and some must have wondered what it revealed about God and about humanity. Had their pandemic exposed some truth about humanity's terrible nature? Some monastic writers and parish priests of the time suggested that the troubles of their day were a punishment, well-deserved and dutifully handed down by an angry God. It's the sort of explanation we rarely speak aloud but struggle to avoid, having gotten the idea somewhere along the way that life is fair, and so the things that befall us, good or bad, must be caused by our actions or the actions of anyone around us we might pass the blame on to. It was within this larger historical context that we find Julia of Norwich one fateful day in 1373. She was 30 years old, and she was dying. We only know a few sparse details about Julian through most of her life, not even her name, not really, as many scholars think that Julian was just the name of the local church and used because her real name was never recorded. But we do know a fair amount about this one day some 800 years ago. She was seriously ill confined to her bed, and a priest had come and administered last rites to her because everyone expected her to die. But instead of dying, she had a series of 16 visions of Jesus. She wrote about her visions in two books, a shorter one, not that long after, and then a longer text after spending a number of years reflecting on her visions. These books are the earliest surviving writings in English with a female author, And they are still one of the most highly valued theological works from across history. Thomas Merton called Julian of Norwich one of the most wonderful of all Christian voices and the greatest English theologian. Now, authoring a theological work did rather push against the gender norms of her time. But as she asked rhetorically in her writing, Just because I am a woman, must I not tell you about the goodness of God when I saw at the same time both his goodness and his wish that it should be known? After her visions and making a full recovery from her illness, Julian became an anchoress. This meant that after a ceremony which included singing the same psalms that were used at funerals, Julian was ushered into a small room, a cell, attached to St. Julian's Church in Norwich, where she would live the rest of her life in permanent seclusion. Now, she could have had a cat for company if she so chose, and so often paintings show Julian in her room with a cat. 
And she would have had a single window looking out over the town square through which she would have talked to visitors who came to see her, offering wisdom and counsel and prayer. But mostly, she would have spent her time alone, reflecting, writing, and praying. With practically every aspect of life cast aside, every pretense, every distraction, every ambition, everything but her own self locked in a small room for the rest of her life, what would be revealed? What would have been left? The world around her wondered if it might be a broken humanity and that God might be a wrathful God when everything was revealed. But Julian of Norwich found something entirely different. She wrote once that some of us believe that God is almighty and may do everything, and that he is all wise and can do everything, but that he is all love and will do everything, there we stop short. And this not knowing is what hinders most God's lovers, as to my sight, she says. We stop short of thinking that God is all love, and will do all things in love. But this is what Julian found central to her faith and to faith. With all else pulled away, Julian of Norwich found an all-loving God. This is the central message of her writings, the central message of Scripture itself, and of the entire Christian faith. Today's passage from Ephesians begins by describing our ills, our ailments, as we have known so well and experienced so often. You are like a dead person, Ephesians says. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. It is a striking metaphor and surprising in its implications because the dead do not do things of their own accord. In describing our worst moments, our lowest moments, complicit with a world so wrought with vile and wicked things, Ephesians does not name this as the root of who we are. Instead, Ephesians describes us as a people who have been co-opted, dominated by destructive powers, uh, taken in by values and powers that we have failed to question and whose vision differs wildly from God. And Ephesians says, lest we try to pass the blame to anyone else, That it is all of us, all of us, it says, Gentile, Jew, modern, and ancient, have been like this, taken in like this. And it's not a pretty picture. It's not anything to diminish, but it's also not the fullest picture of who we are. And Ephesians continues. However, it says, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead. And it lays out the reason why, simply and plainly, because God loves us. It is unrelated to what we have done, to anything we have done, and pointedly so. We did not earn this grace. We have simply received it out of God's love. God loved us for who we were in death and now also in life. God loved us for who we once were, for who we are today, and God will live us for love us forever from now as well. The most important fundamental aspect of faith and of salvation, the thing which matters more than any other thing, is that God is love and God loves us. We can complicate this accidentally all the time. 
the scripture in Ephesians continues, and it talks about being saved because of our faith. But in the translation we read from, you might note there's a footnote which provides an alternate translation that it can also say, through God's faithfulness. Salvation is not a response to our coming to faith. Salvation comes because God loves us and for no other reason. Further on, the scripture mentions being created to do good things, which can lead us to think that we must earn our salvation on the back end, that we must work to repay what God has done for us and then suffer the consequences if we fall short. But the text here, which reads created for good works, might also be understood and translated as being created to work well or to be in good working order. God has raised us to life as we were intended to live it, to live it with love and compassion as God exhibited first and created us in, because that's how we function best. That's how we thrive. We are raised not to some arbitrary moral code, but to be the people that God has created us to be. In one of her most compelling visions, Julian of Norwich sees God giving her a little thing about the size of a hazelnut, which she held in the palm of her hand. And she wondered what it might be. And God told her, it is all that is made. All of creation. And a little round thing, the size of a nut, in the palm of her hand. And she writes that she marveled at how it might last. It seemed so small and so fragile. Something that would pass away, perhaps, or crumble into itself. And God said to her, It lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of God. She writes, In this little thing I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God keeps it. All of creation, sustained by love, ourselves a part of that. And so we last and ever shall because God loves us. God made us, God loves us, and God keeps us. Elsewhere in her writings, Julian wonders what all of her visions, all of everything perhaps, means. And she writes the answer she received. Do you want to know what your Lord meant? Know well that love was what he meant. Who showed you this? Love. What did he show? Love. Why did he show it to you? For love. Hold fast to this, and you will know and understand more of the same, but you will never understand or know from it anything else for all eternity. She continues and says, This is how I was taught that our Lord's meaning was love. And so we might see that her insistence that all shall be well and all shall be well is not some trite thing, is not the stuff of sickly sweet positivity, but the assurance that comes from the deepest understanding of the gospel, that God loves all that God has created and God loves every one of us. When all else is stripped away, we are not left with wickedness or fragility, but the creation which God loves and sustains in love. And this 
is the gospel. This is the stuff of the psalms and the songs, of revivals and conversions, of hard-earned hope and peace that persists. In the worst of times, in the bleakest of moments, this truth remains. God loves us. And so, as Julian prays, so also do we. Teach us to believe that by your grace, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, our next hymn this morning.